Great. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Um, nice to see you all. Um, so yes, welcome to the uh, eighth meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. And it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce Jack Spencer, who is an associate professor at MIT in the US. His areas of specialization are metaphysics, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind and metaethics, as well as decision theory. And he's published papers in various journals, including mind and philosophy and phenomenological research. Professor Spencer's paper this evening is entitled uh, Intrinsically Desiring the Vague, which is slightly different from the original published title, but on a similar topic. So please join me in welcoming Professor Spencer this evening. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, it will be great to be together, but being virtually together is a great second best. When I began this paper, I had hoped to um, collaborate with Brandon Feidelson, but uh, the realities of the pandemic intervened, so it's just me today. The topic is vagueness and rational desire. Uh, it's a topic that's somewhat new to me, but I found myself ever interested in it, continue to find more and more interested about it. And one thing I hope to convey is my enthusiasm about the topic. I wanted to start with just some observations. It's not bizarre to desire the big. It's not bizarre to desire that a glass of water be at least pretty full. But it is bizarre to continue to desire that the glass be at least pretty full upon learning exactly how full it is. That knowledge may leave room for rational uncertainty. If the glass of water is borderline case of being at least pretty full, then it's rational to be uncertain whether it's at least pretty full, despite knowing exactly how full it is. But it's bizarre to care. It's bizarre to worry that the glass known to be exactly this full is not at least pretty full. It's bizarre to hope that it's at least pretty full you know how full it is. And this sort of pattern arises in other cases. You order a hamburger at the pub. It's not bizarre to desire that the hamburger be big. It's bizarre to continue to desire that the hamburger be big upon knowing how big it is. This suggests that it's not rational to intrinsically desire the big that it's rational to care about how things are vaguely, but it's not rational to continue to care about how they are vaguely upon enough knowledge about how they are precisely. If it were rational to intrinsically desire that the glass of water be at least pretty big, pretty full, then it'd be rational to continue to desire that it be at least pretty full upon knowing how full it is, but that desire is bizarre. One recent defense of the claim that it's not rational to intrinsically desire the vague belongs to Andrew Bacon in his 2018 book, Vagueness and Thought. Bacon's primarily concerned to develop a theory of propositions that admits vague propositions. A proposition is vague just if it's not precise. A proposition is precise just if it's not vague. If there are vague propositions, it's easy to formulate the thesis that it's not rational to intrinsically desire the vague. 
say that a proposition is consequential just if either it or its negation is rational to intrinsically desire. P is consequential just if it's rational to care intrinsically about whether P. We can capture the thought that it's not rational to intrinsically desire the vague then with three on the handout, inconsequentials. The thesis that some propositions are vague and that every vague proposition is inconsequential. The thesis that some propositions are vague, but that no intrinsic desire that has a vague proposition as its content is rational. Not only does Bacon accept inconsequentialism, he accepts something stronger. Not only does he think that every vague proposition is inconsequential, he thinks that every inconsequential proposition is vague. According to Bacon, the distinction between the precise and the vague and the distinction between the consequential and the inconsequential coincide, dividing propositions into the same non-empty classes. I'm suspicious of this additional claim. I suspect that some precise propositions are inconsequential if any propositions are inconsequential. But I'm gonna focus on inconsequentials, defending what I've called my thesis on the handout to claim that some vague proposition is consequential if some proposition is vague. I won't take a definite stance on whether there's vague propositions. Philosophical orthodoxy says that there's not. As we'll see, there are some powerful arguments against the orthodoxy, some powerful reasons for admitting vague propositions. But I'm primarily concerned to explore what is and is not rational to intrinsically desire, what is and is not consequential under the assumption that there's vague propositions. The criticism of inconsequentialism will shed light on a distinction that I think is interesting but neglected between things that are consequential only if precise and things that are consequential even if vague. So I think pain may be of the former example. I think it may very well be that pain is consequential, that it's rational to care intrinsically about whether there's pain only if pain is precise. I think that truth is an example of the latter. I think truth is consequential even if truth is vague. If there's time, although I don't think there will be, I'll also say how this criticism of inconsequentialism sheds light on the very distinction between the vague and the precise, thus shedding light on what it is for a proposition to be vague. In the background, I'm going to make some assumptions about propositions. These are assumptions shared with Bacon. Broadly speaking, the assumptions are these, that logic is classical and that propositions are coarse-grained. The most familiar coarse-grained conception of propositions is the possible world's view, on which propositions are sets, subsets of the set of possible worlds. My assumptions are consistent with that view, but a kind of weakening of them. So I'm gonna assume that there's a set of indices, not saying what indices are, and that every subset thereof is a proposition, that every proposition is a subset thereof. Indices give rise to the space of propositions in much the way the possible world does not. I'm gonna assume that one index is actual, and that a proposition is true just if the actual index is an element of it. Thus, I'm assuming bivalence that every proposition is either true or false. And I'm gonna assume that precise propositions have the same coarse grain structure that there's a set of precise indices and that proposition, precise propositions are subsets thereof. An opponent of vague propositions, 
thinks that every proposition is precise. They think that every index is a precise index. They think the finest partition of logical space is the partition into precise indices. A proponent of vague propositions thinks that some propositions are precise and that some propositions are vague. They think that for every precise index, there are many indices therein. They think that there are refinements of the partition of logical space into the precise indices. Why accept vague propositions? Why believe in these additional distinctions in logical space? A battery of arguments can be put forward. Here in the interest of time, I'll mention just one. The argument says in broad strokes of this, that it's rational to be uncertain about something, even if you're not uncertain about anything precise. The argument has two premises. The first premise is a premise about rational credence functions. A credence function maps every proposition on the unit interval, to every proposition to some real number on the unit interval. And according to the first premise of the argument, every rational credence function is a probability function. The second premise says, it's just one way of writing down the claim that it's rational to be uncertain in something, even if you're certain in everything precise. It says for some precise index Y, some proposition P and some rational credence function C, C's credence in P conditional on Y is middling, strictly between zero and one. If every rational credence function is a probability function, so if C is a probability function, and you condition it on a precise index, its credence in every precise proposition is either zero or one, since a precise index settles every precise matter. So if there's some proposition that it's rational to be uncertain in conditional on a precise index, there's vague propositions. The plausibility of middling credence can be evinced by thinking about borderline cases. Let Y be a precise index throughout which Harry has exactly 30,000 hairs. We could argue for middling credence as follows. Three, one, Harry is borderline bald if he has exactly 30,000 hairs. I Googled that one. That's just about the right number. Three, two, if Harry is borderline bald if he has exactly 30,000 hairs, then it's rational to be uncertain whether Harry is bald conditional on Y. And three, three, if it's rational to be uncertain whether Harry is bald conditional on Y, then for some proposition P and some rational credence function C, C's credence in P conditional on Y is middling. I don't put this for argument forward as unassailable. Three, two, and three, three merit further scrutiny, but all three premises enjoy considerable plausibility they together imply middle and credence, which together with probabilism implies vague propositions. This gives a glimpse of the strength of the case for vague propositions. And it also tells us something about the role that vague propositions play in rational psychology on the doxastic side of things. If I may oversimplify slightly, vague propositions are propositions that are potentially inscrutable from the precise. They're the things that it's rational to be uncertain in, despite certainty in the precise. And thus, things that provide inconclusive evidence for and against precise indices. That would lead us to a second argument for vague propositions, which I'll leave aside for now. That prompts a question, 
What role do vague propositions play in rational psychology on the bouletic factor? And it's here that inconsequentialism makes its most distinctive claim. It says that they play no role at all. They play a doxastic role, but no bouletic role. I find it easiest to think about inconsequentialism when cast in terms of utility function. A utility function maps every index to a real number. In order to formulate inconsequentialism in terms of utility functions, it's helpful to introduce the notion of intraprecision. Propositions P and Q are intraprecise, just if each is a non-empty subset of some precise index. Each is a subregion of some precise index. Each is an elaboration, starting from a full story about how things are precisely, at least a partial story about how they are vaguely. With these terms in hand, we can formulate inconsequentialism a different way. As this claim, some distinct indices are intraprecise. That's equivalent to the claim that there's vague propositions. And every rational utility function maps every pair of intraprecise indices to the same value. Some utility functions map indices in the same index to different values. According to inconsequentialism, all of those utility functions are irrational every rational utility function is indifferent between any two indices in the same precise index. And given a connection between rational intrinsic desire and rational utility, that will imply that vague propositions are inconsequential. That it's never rational to intrinsically desire a vague proposition, since a vague proposition may be true in part of, but not all of, a precise index. Inconsequentialism thus has a bold consequence concerning rational preference. It implies indifference, 14 on the handout, that if P and Q are intraprecise, then it's not rational to prefer P to Q. If P and Q are subregions of the same precise index, then rationality requires that one be indifferent between P and Q. That's what inconsequentialism says. And that's the consequence of inconsequentialism that I'm gonna to subject to scrutiny. I'm gonna argue that if there's vague propositions, then indifference fails. I'm gonna be looking for cases where P and Q are intraprecise. They include a full story about how things are precisely and then say some other things. Where it seems, and in some cases I think is the case that it's rational to prefer, that is strictly prefer one to the other. I'll give some arguments to that conclusion that I find convincing, but let me start with some arguments to that conclusion that I do not find convincing. Consider some things that objective list theorists frequently include on their objective lists. The absence of pain, the presence of pleasure, the cultivation of love and friendship, the creation and appreciation of beauty. All of these admit borderline cases. All of these are vague if there's vague propositions. So according to inconsequentialism, all of these are inconsequential. These alleged paradigm examples of things that matter, these alleged paradigm examples of things that it's rational to intrinsically desire and intrinsically care about, are not rational to intrinsically desire if inconsequentialism holds. 
That may seem to amount to a reductio of inconsequentialism. It may seem to be a mooring in fact that it's rational to care intrinsically about whether there's pain. Or that it's a mooring in fact to care intrinsically about whether a relationship is a friendship. But I think that a strong case can be made far from being refuted from these surprising consequences, inconsequentialism is rather confirmed by them. The absence of pain, the presence of pleasure, the cultivation of love and friendship, all of these are consequential if precise. And they're precise if every proposition is precise. But if there's vague propositions, these are among the vague. And I think a strong case can be made that these are not consequential, they're not rational to intrinsically desire if they're vague. Focus on the absence of pain. Go to a precise index at which the most painful thing is a borderline pain. It's not clear whether it's painful enough to be a pain. If there's vague propositions, then the indices in that precise index disagree about whether there's pain. They agree about how things are precisely. They agree that things are precisely thus and so, but they disagree about whether there's pain. If degrees of painfulness are precise, as I'll assume, then they agree about how painful each thing is. They agree about how painful the most painful thing is. But they disagree about whether there's pain because they disagree about where the threshold for pain is. Some have a lax standard for pain and thus think that there's pain, given how things are precisely. Others have a stringent threshold for pain and thus think that there's no pain, given how things are precisely. Inconsequentialism is false if it's rational to prefer things being precisely thus and so and there being no pain to things being precisely thus and so and there being pain. If it's rational to care intrinsically about whether there's pain, then it's rational to prefer things being precisely thus and so and there being no pain to things being precisely thus and so and there being pain, since the former satisfies and the latter frustrates what is then a rational intrinsic desire. But I think it stands to reason that it's bizarre to prefer things being precisely thus and so and there being no pain to things being precisely thus and so and there being pain. Degrees of pain seem to screen off the consequentiality of pain. It's bizarre to prefer a sensation that's exactly this painful and not a pain to a sensation that's exactly this painful and is a pain. I said that that preference is bizarre. I'm inclined to think that it's also irrational, but I'm aware that the connection between what's bizarre and what's irrational is contested. On some views, some restrictive views about rational intrinsic desire, bizarre intrinsic desires and cruel intrinsic desires are not rational. But on other views, permissive views, intrinsic desires that are cruel and or bizarre may be rational nevertheless. The lurking giant here is the view that I call on 17 on the handout, bouletic permissivism, a view often associated with Hume, which says that every proposition is consequential, that every utility function is rational. It's the view that the only rational constraints on intrinsic desire are structural or coherence-based. If bouletic permissivism is true, then it's rational to intrinsically desire the absence of pain, even if the absence of pain is vague. If bouletic permissivism is true, then it's rational to prefer things being precisely thus and so and there being no pain 
to things being precisely thus and so and there being pain, even though that preference is bizarre. And if that preference is rational, despite being bizarre, then inconsequentialism is false. I won't spend efforts trying to argue against bluetic permissivism here. If bluetic permissivism holds, then my thesis does as well. If bluetic permissivism holds, then some vague proposition is inconsequential if some proposition is vague. It's inconsequentialists who must do battle with bluetic permissivism. But I'm interested in whether my thesis can be defended without appeal to a permissive conception of rational intrinsic desire. One might have thought that this argument by way of pain would fit the bill. One might have thought that the absence of pain is something that is rational to intrinsically desire, even on restrictive conceptions of rational intrinsic desire. But if there's vague propositions, then the absence of pain is vague, since pain admits borderline cases. And if the absence of pain is vague, it's bizarre to intrinsically desire the absence of pain. So on a restrictive conception of rational intrinsic desire, which deems bizarre intrinsic desires irrational, it's not rational to intrinsically desire the absence of pain if the absence of pain is vague. And what goes for pain goes in many other cases too. To say that a relationship is precisely thus and so is to fully characterize how it is intrinsically and extrinsically in all precise respects. It's to characterize precisely how much fun you have together, precisely how open you are together, precisely how disposed you are to invite each other over for dinner and whatnot. I said a moment ago, it's bizarre to prefer a sensation that's precisely this painful and not a pain to a sensation that's precisely this painful and a pain. And similarly, it's bizarre to prefer a relationship that's precisely thus and so in a friendship to a relationship that's precisely thus and so and not a friendship. If being precisely thus and so makes you a borderline case of being a friendship, then it's rational to be uncertain. Conditional on the relationship being precisely thus and so, it's rational to be uncertain whether it's a relationship, but it's bizarre to care. Someone who prefers a relationship that's precisely thus and so in a friendship to a relationship that's precisely thus and so and not a friendship has a bizarre friendship fetish. Similarly, beauty, it's bizarre to prefer a sunset that's precisely thus and so and beautiful to a sunset that's precisely thus and so and not beautiful. That's to say that inconsequentialism is more robust than might have appeared if there are vague propositions it makes surprising claims about what's consequential, but a strong case can be made that those surprising predictions are correct. Not every case patterns as pain does. In a moment, I'll turn to truth. It's not bizarre to prefer a belief that's precisely thus and so and true to a belief that's precisely thus and so and false. You could imagine a kind of rhetorical therapy. Who cares if the belief is True, if it's precisely thus and so. In other cases, that therapy has some efficacy. Who cares if the relationship is a friendship if it's precisely thus and so? But in the truth case, that therapy has no effect. If anything, it backfires, reinforcing the thought that one doesn't know how good a belief is until one knows whether it's true or false. But let me mention some other cases that pattern I think as truth does and not as pain does. 
One of them, a case I owe to Andrew Huddleston, goes by way of kosher and trafe. Plausibly, being kosher admits a borderline case on a sort of cartoonish understanding where the meat of a bird is trafe if the bird is a scavenger. It's easy to produce possible cases of borderline kosher. The cross between a chicken and a vulture might be a borderline case of a scavenger. Its meat might be a borderline case of being kosher. Inconsequentialism says that whether meat ingested is kosher is inconsequential, not something rational to intrinsically care about. The crucial question then can be put in terms of preference. Is it rational to prefer having ingested meat that's precisely thus and so and kosher to meat that's precisely thus and so and trace? And I think it's clear that it is. Meat that's precisely thus and so is genetically this way. It's physiologically this way. It comes from a bird that has exactly this sort of evolutionary past, from a bird with exactly these dispositions with regard to scavenging. But nothing there seems to screen off the consequentiality of meat being trained. Here's another way to put it. It's not a requirement of rationality that one care at all about the difference between kosher and trade. One can rationally be indifferent between ingesting kosher meat and ingesting trafe meat. The anthropologist with regard to these dietary laws is that way. If inconsequentialism is true, then rationality requires that all of us at least sometimes have that quasi-anthropological stance toward the distinction between kosher and trafe. Someone who always prefers ingesting kosher meat to ingesting trafe meat is a full participant in the practice. According to inconsequentialism, rationality requires that one not be a full participant in the practice. That's a surprising and disturbing consequence of inconsequentialism. And something similar goes in other cases. Take the moral ought, or the all things considered ought, or rather it's dual, the moral permissibility or all things considered permissibility. There appear to be borderline cases of permissibility. Here's one from a 2016 Miriam Schoenfeld. Daryl is watching his two-year-old daughter play in the city park. It is permissible to divert his attention for one second. It's not permissible to divert his attention for five minutes. Is it permissible to divert his attention for 30 seconds, 31, 32? Plausibly, we can create a sorority series, admitting of borderline cases of permissibility out of a series of diversions whose lengths, whose lengths differ only by a second. If one of these possible diversions is borderline permissible, focus upon it. Perhaps it's 31 seconds. If there's vague propositions, then the indices in some precise index agree that there was that diversion, but disagree about its permissibility. They agree that Daryl diverted his attention precisely thus and so, but disagree about whether it was permissible for him to do so. The key question then for inconsequentialism is this, and put in terms of preference. Is it rational to prefer? Is it rational, say, for Daryl to prefer? Having diverted his attention precisely thus and so permissibly to having diverted his attention precisely thus and so and impermissibly. 
And I think a strong case can be made that that preference is rational. The contrast with pain is stark here. If someone has the bizarre preference of preferring a pain, a sensation that's precisely this painful and not a pain to a sensation that's precisely this painful and a pain, then that will beget other bizarre parts of their psychology. Upon learning or supposing that there's a sensation that's precisely this painful, they'll worry that it's a pain. They'll hope that it's not a pain. And those are bizarre worries and hopes. If Daryl prefers diverting his attention precisely thus and so permissibly to diverting his attention precisely thus and so and impermissibly, then that will beget parallel downstream consequences for his psychology. Upon learning or supposing that he diverted his attention precisely thus and so, he'll worry that he did so impermissibly. He'll hope that he did so permissibly. But I think it stands to reason that those are not bizarre words. Those are ordinary. Those are indeed worries and hopes that we expect Daryl to have if he's decent. After all, upon learning or supposing that he diverted his attention precisely thus and so, he's rationally uncertain whether he acted permissibly. A change of basis may be helpful here. Daryl can be rationally, un, rationally certain that he mistreated his daughter just if he diverted his attention impermissibly. Upon learning or supposing that he diverted his attention precisely thus and so, he's rationally uncertain whether he mistreated his daughter. If he doesn't hope that he did not mistreat his daughter, if he doesn't worry that he mistreated his daughter, if whether he mistreated his daughter is nothing to him, then we worry about Daryl and his decency. Someone who always prefers acting permissibly, acting impermissibly, is a sort of full participant in the moral practice. They've fully given over their motivations to these deontic notions. According to inconsequentialism, it's irrational to be a full participant in morality that kind of way. Rationality requires that we all have the quasi-sociopathic relationship to morality where we're indifferent between doing as we ought and as we oughtn't, doing between what's permissible and impermissible, at least sometimes. One other case just to round this out before I get to truth is comparative goodness. Some precise indices are borderline better than others. In fact, sometimes each of a pair of precise indices are borderline better than the other. As just one possible way of motivating this, consider the creation series. We have X, a precise index at which there's 99 happy people. We also have precise indices Y1 through Y a million. Each Y has 99 happy people, duplicates of the original 99, and one additional person. The additional person in Y1 is very happy indeed. Y1's better than X. The additional person in Y2 is slightly less happy. Y2 is better than X. The additional person in Y a million is miserable. X is better than Y a million. Very plausibly, some Y and some X. Some Y is such that 
it's borderline better than X and X is borderline better than it. Use the rational credence heuristic. Take some Y in the middle of this series. It seems rational to give some credence to X being better than it and some credence to it being better than X, even if, for example, you give some credence to them being equally good or whatever. If there are precise indices that are each borderline better than the other, then we can argue against inconsequentialism straightforwardly. The argument has two premises. So we, if there's vague propositions and each of a pair of precise indices can be borderline better than the other, then precise indices X and Y can each be consistent with the claim that X is better than Y and with the claim that Y is better than X. Part of X says that X is better than Y, part of X says that Y is better than X and ditto for Y. The first premise of the argument then is 6-1. It's rational both to prefer X and X being better than Y to Y and X being better than Y and to prefer y and y being better than x to x and y being better than x. It's a claim about a certain pattern of preference being rational. It may be easier to grok it cast in terms of conditional preference. 6-1 cast in terms of conditional preference says this, it's rational both to prefer x to y, conditional on x being better than y, and y to x, conditional on y being better than x. Clearly that claim has some plausibility. Very hard claim to deny. And the only other premise is a kind of structural premise that says this, if it's rational both to prefer A to B and to prefer C to D, then either it's rational to prefer A to D or it's rational to prefer C to B. That claim, it turns out, is pretty easy to motivate. It's not unassailable. Someone could deny it in various ways, but lots of pictures about the relationship between credence and utility and rational preference deliver it. The two premises together entail that either it's rational to prefer X and X being better than Y to X and Y being better than X, or it's rational to prefer Y and Y being better than X to Y and X being better than Y, which is inconsistent with inconsequentialism. Those are just a couple cases that don't pattern like pain. I want to now turn to the truth case since I think it's interesting. It also has a certain kind of dialectical advantage. So if push came to shove, inconsequentialists could deny that any of the aforementioned admit a borderline case. They could deny that there's borderline cases of trafe and kosher, deny that there's borderline cases of ought and permissibility, deny that there's borderline cases of comparative goodness. That's a hard claim to defend. Borderline cases have a certain kind of epistemic signature and we appear to see that epistemic signature in these cases as well. But in principle, they could deny it. If they denied it, these propositions would be precise. They would never cut within a precise index and the arguments would fail. In other words, the arguments require not just claims about what's consequential, but also about what's precise and what's vague. And in principle, the claim about what's precise and what's vague could be denied. Someone who wanted to keep the distinction between the precise and the vague and the consequential and the inconsequential coincident might say that we're going to have to move a little bit, deviate from our original intuitions about what's vague and what's precise. But no such maneuver is available in the case of truth. 
If anything admits borderline cases, truth has to. If any propositions are vague, then truth has to be vague. And truth does not pattern like pain. It patterns more like kosher and permissibility. That's not just because it's epistemic. Some epistemic things pattern like pain do. They're plausibly consequential only if precise. Consistency of belief is an example, potentially. Belief admits borderline cases. If there's vague propositions, then the indices in a precise index might disagree about what I believe. Thus, the indices in a precise index might disagree about whether my beliefs are consistent. Maybe all of the indices agree that I believe that not P, and they disagree about whether I also believe that P. We could get an argument against inconsequentialism up and running here. The key claim would be this, it's rational to prefer that precise index, things being precisely thus and so, and having consistent beliefs to that precise index, things being precisely thus and so, and having inconsistent beliefs. After all, having consistent beliefs is epistemically better than having inconsistent beliefs, and things being precisely thus and so leaves it open whether my beliefs are consistent or inconsistent. But I think that that key claim is doubtful. I think it's doubtful that it's rational to prefer having consistent beliefs to having inconsistent beliefs, conditional on things being precisely thus and so. If the indices in the precise index disagree about whether I believe that P, then I'm intimately related to P. Perhaps I affirm it under some guises and deny it under others. Perhaps I take it for granted in reasoning, but disavow it. Perhaps my attitude toward it is on the border between believing and imagining. Believing that not P and being intimately related to P as I am is epistemically bad in much the way that having inconsistent beliefs is, irrespective of whether the intimate relation I bear to P is intimate enough to constitute belief. Believing that not P and taking it for granted that P but disavowing it is epistemically bad in much the way that having inconsistent beliefs. The question is thus subtle. The question is whether where the threshold for belief lies is of epistemic significance. The question is whether holding fixed the precise relations I bear to every proposition, it matters which ones I believe. And it's not obvious to me that it does. The proposed therapy above has some efficacy. Who cares what propositions you believe if you're related to propositions precisely thus and so? Who cares whether it counts as belief to affirm it under these guises and deny it under these guises? But truth, I think, is different. If there's vague propositions, then the indices in a precise index might disagree about whether P is true. And they might agree that I believe that P. So they'll disagree about whether I believe P truly or falsely. We can get a structurally similar argument up and running against inconsequentialism as follows. The key claim is this, it's rational to prefer things being precisely thus and so and believing P truly to things being precisely thus and so and believing P falsely. If that claim holds, inconsequentialism fails. And I think that that claim does hold.
That is a rational fact. Things being precisely thus and so tells us a lot about the belief, but it doesn't tell us whether it's true or false. It leaves that open. I think that a full account of how epistemically good that belief is can't be told until we know the truth value of its content. Nothing precise screens off the consequentiality of truth. Now we can introduce a notion of determinate truth. The most convenient here is this, a proposition is determinately true, just if it's true throughout the precise index. If the indices in the precise index disagree about whether P, then my belief that P is not determinately true, even if it's true. And that might say something about how epistemically good my belief is. Perhaps determinately true beliefs are epistemically better than true beliefs that aren't determinately true. Even if that claim holds, though, it casts no doubt on the argument against inconsequentialism we're considering. Even if a belief that's determinately true is better than a belief that's true and not determinately true, it may be the case, and I think it is the case, that a belief that's true and not determinately true is better than a belief that's false and not determinately true. Things might look different if we didn't assume bivalence. If we didn't assume bivalence, then maybe a belief that wasn't determinately true would be neither true nor false. The situation then would be very different. We couldn't ask whether a determinately true belief, we couldn't ask how good a belief that's true and not determinately true is. But if bivalence holds, then determinate truth is just a strengthening of truth, much like necessary truth. In the present context, to be determinately true is roughly to be true and scrutable from the precise. Now, it may be that a belief that's true and scrutable from the precise is epistemically better than a belief that's true and not scrutable from the precise. But a strong case can be made that a belief that's true and not scrutable from the precise is epistemically better than a belief that's false. And what goes for belief goes for other epistemic attitudes and activities. I think it's rational to prefer things being precisely thus and so and guessing P truly to things being precisely thus and so and guessing P falsely. I think it's rational to prefer things being precisely thus and so and giving credence 0.6 to P and P being true to things being precisely thus and so, giving 0.6 credence to P and P being false. I think that truth is consequential even if it's vague. One might wonder whether there's any way of making a more systematic defense of the consequentiality of truth, conditional on it being vague. I think that there is one that's available. I think that plausibly, truth is consequential if probabilism holds. Two pillars of the Baconian view are inconsequentialism and probabilism, but it's not obvious to me that those are consistent, or anyway, it's not obvious to me that they sit well together. Inconsequentialism, given bivalence, is inconsistent with the consequentiality of truth. Inconsequentialism implies that we sometimes must be indifferent between believing P truly and believing P falsely, suspecting true P and P being true, and suspecting P and P being false. But it's not obvious to me that probabilism is consistent with the inconsequentiality of truth. I think probabilism might itself imply or anyway motivate the thought that truth is consequential.
The argument here starts with two utility functions. The first is a binary epistemic utility function, which maps a credence function and an index to a real number, which measures how good, how epistemically good the credence function is at the index. The other is a unary epistemic utility function, which maps an index to a real number and tells you how good the index is epistemically. It's an epistemic appraisal of how things being exactly that way, precisely and vague. The binary epistemic utility function gives us a notion of ideality. Credence function C is ideal at index Z just if for every credence function D, the binary epistemic utility of C at Z is at least as great as the binary epistemic utility of D at Z. Put in plainer English this, take the credence function, take all the credence functions, see how good they are at Z. The ideal ones are the ones that are unexceeded in their epistemic goodness there. And we also have a notion of indication. Credence function C indicates index Z just if C maps every proposition true at Z to one and every proposition false at Z to zero. These are sometimes called the omniscient credence functions because it's the credences that an omniscient agent would have at the index. Now the usual direction of argumentation starts from the consequentiality of truth and goes towards probabilism. Here's a simplified version of that argument. The consequentiality of truth motivates the claim I have at 29 on the handout, ideal indication. The claim that a credence function is ideal at index Z just if it indicates Z. If credence function C indicates Z, then its distance from the truth at Z is zero. It gives credence one to every truth and credence zero to every falsehood. And every other credence function has positive distance from the truth. So if truth is consequential, ideal indication is plausible. And another plausible claim is convex combination. It says that every rational credence function is a convex combination of ideal credence functions, a linear weighted average. The various scoring rules in accuracy arguments are ways of encoding convex combination. As it turns out, ideal indication and convex combination together imply probabilism. If you think that truth is consequential in a way that motivates ideal indication, and you like this convex combination idea, then you get the result that every rational credence function satisfies the probability axiom, because every convex combination of indicator functions is a probability function. I'm interested in whether you can reverse the direction, starting from probabilism and deriving various claims about the consequentiality of truth. The natural candidate then is ideal indication itself. Is there a way to go backwards from probabilism to ideal indication. There's reason to be optimistic. If C is a probability function and you can condition C on an index Z, then C conditioned on Z indicates Z. If you start with a probability function and condition it on an index, what you arrive at is a credence function that indicates the index, mapping every proposition true there to one and every proposition false there to zero. So we already have a connection between probability functions and indicator functions. All that we need to complete the backward road is a connection between rationality and ideality. Here's one way it might go. There's other potential ways. So 
So say that index Z is rationally defined just if some rational credence function C is such that it's defined conditional on Z. Then the following two premises get us back ideal indication from probabilism. Weak regularity, the claim that every index is rationally defined, and ideal reflection, which is the harder one to parse. I'll read it off the handout and then give it in plainer English. If index Z is rationally defined, then credence function C is ideal at index Z, just if for some rational credence function C1, C1 conditioned on Z is defined and identical. Here's the idea. Take all of the rational credence functions, condition them on Z. A credence function is ideal at an index only if it's one of those results. In this kind of way, ideality and rationality have to go together, which is a natural kind of thought in this setting. Since Z is the strongest proposition there is, it's natural to think that rational credence and ideal credence come together and converge, conditional on a possible world or an index, leaving no uncertainty. Now, as it turns out, probabilism, weak regularity, and ideal reflection together imply ideal indication. I'm interested in whether you can get back to ideal indication because I'm interested in whether ideal indication is consistent with inconsequentialism. Ideal indication implies the thesis I have at 37 on the handout, binary variance. It says this, for some credence function C and some pair of intraprecise indices Z1 and Z2, C is better at Z1 than it is at Z2, epistemically speaking. Here's what binary variance says. Sometimes when you take a credence function and you see how good it is, it is at indices, it varies within a precise index. The very same credence function may be epistemically better at one index in a precise index than at another. That's an interesting thesis in its own right, but it's interesting in the present context because it appears to imply unary variance. Claim that for some pair of intraprecise indices Z1 and Z2, the epistemic utility of Z1 exceeds the epistemic utility of Z2. I won't offer a derivation of unary variance from binary variance, but here's the idea. Sometimes indices, indeed sometimes intraprecise indices, agree about what credence functions agents have. So Z1 and Z2 might agree that my credence function is C. If C is better at Z1 than at Z2, then it seems like it could be the case that Z1 is epistemically better than Z2. Since how good, epistemically speaking, an index is, seems partly a function of how good the credence functions had by agents at the index are at the index. To make things vivid, imagine that I have a credence function that indicates Z1 then it seems like it could be epistemically better for Z1 to be the case than for Z2 to be the case, since at Z1, I'm doing so much epistemically better than I am at Z2. But it's hard to square unary variance with inconsequentials. If indices in the same precise index can differ in how epistemically good they are, then it seems like it'd be rational to prefer one index in a precise index to another on account of its being epistemically better. That might not always hold. Maybe Z1 is epistemically better than Z2, but Z2 is morally better than Z1. Still, if how good indices are, epistemically speaking, in a precise index can vary, then for some intraprecise indices, Z1 and Z2, it seems very plausible to think that Z1 is epistemically better than Z2, and on account of that, it's rational to prefer Z1 to Z2. 
if binary variance implies unary invariance, variance, excuse me, and unary variance is inconsistent with inconsequentialism, then binary, binary variance is as well. Now I offered an argument for how you might derive ideal indication from probabilism. I think I like ideal reflection as a premise. Weak regularity seems to me very strong, but it turns out that various weakenings of it will suffice. Anyone who believes in vague propositions should think that many indices in, an in, in a precise index are rationally defined. But in order to get the argument going, all you need is weakened regularity, that each of some pair of intraprecise indices are rationally defined. Probabilism, weakened regularity, and ideal reflection together imply binary variance. So if binary variance is inconsistent with inconsequentialism, then probabilism is inconsistent with inconsequentialism. That's not super surprising, but let me summarize. The idea is something like this. Probabilism seems to be committed to truth mattering, whereas inconsequentialism is inconsistent with truth matter. I think probabilists should, under the assumption that those vague propositions reject inconsequentialism, and I think that inconsequentialists should reject probabilism. They should think that rational credence functions are kind of like probability functions, but have a slightly different mathematical structure. I can talk about what that structure is in Q&A, but maybe I'll just leave it there. What's emerged then is an interesting distinction between things that are consequential only if precise and things that are consequential, even if vague. I'm not given a theory of those things, but I find it very fascinating indeed. Pain, love, friendship, those seem to be things that are consequential only if precise. Consistency of belief, other examples we could have included, having a rational credence function. Other things, being trace, being impermissible, being comparatively better, being true, those cases, are things that seem to be consequential, even if vague. If that's right, inconsequentialism is false. And it also leaves us with the kind of puzzle. Inconsequentialism, plus a strengthening of it, gave us one way of understanding the distinction between precise and vague propositions. That way of understanding that distinction is not tenable in consequentialism. Thanks so much.